Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. So how did a song written by two people who'd never even visited West Virginia become a worldwide anthem for the Mountain State? We hear the story behind Take Me Home, Country Roads. So there was this overall mood of homesickness, not just for West Virginians, but also for our country. So the song was born into that. West Virginia. There's a Welsh term for homesickness. It's called hirith. And it's tied to a time in Welsh history when the British pushed farmers off their land. And so many found their way to Appalachia. They brought with them their songs and their folktales. As time grows near, my dearest dear, when you and I... And indie pro wrestling in southern West Virginia was able to keep going through the pandemic with drive-in shows. You know, I think this year has been a year of people stepping out on faith, you know, trying to get out and do things they normally have never done, you know, do new things. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. Today, we're revisiting some of our award-winning stories from last year. We'll start with a story about a song that you probably know. Take Me Home, Country Roads has been a worldwide anthem since its release in 1971. It's one of the things people connect with West Virginia. But there's a debate about whether the song was really even written about the state. Now, where I live, in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, people love to claim it. Though I'm never quite sure whether they're being sincere or trolling West Virginians. For the song's 50th anniversary, Roxy Todd spoke with people about what they think. Was the song written about West Virginia? The story she produced won a regional Murrow Award. Take a listen. Almost heaven, West Virginia. One night in 1970, Bill Danoff and his then-girlfriend Taffy Nivert were hanging out with John Denver, and they played a few verses from a song they'd been working on. Denver immediately said he wanted to record it, as Dan Offer calls. It was sort of like an old movie, you know? Why don't, why don't we all do it together? We'll, and uh, I said, okay, well, we gotta finish it. And he said, well, let's finish it. The three of them, Danoff, Nivert, and Denver, stayed up all night finishing the song. Knowing little about the state, Nivert pulled out an encyclopedia and looked up West Virginia. We kept just throwing out lines, and then we'd write down the ones that seemed to fit. They played it the next night at the Cellar Door, an iconic, intimate venue in Washington, D.C. The people clapped for about five minutes straight. First time they'd ever heard the song. And you knew you had something, because that doesn't, that just doesn't happen, you know. One of those in the audience was Andy Ridenour. At the time, Ridenour was a student at Concord College in southern West Virginia. I was on holiday break between Christmas and New Year's, along with some friends from West Virginia. My table, which was sitting right at the front of the stage, uh, and with my friends, we all went nuts with our West Virginia connections, and, and uh, quite frankly, everybody in the place went nuts. This wasn't the first time Ridenour had seen Denver play. A couple months prior to the show at the cellar door, Denver played at Concord College. It was Denver's trip to the small town of Athens, West Virginia, that may have helped spark the hit single. He and his band flew into Roanoke, Virginia, and they had to drive over on old US 460, which a lot of it was a two-lane road, meandering through towns and parallel, running parallel to the New River. And when John and his band got out of the car, they commented on the roads. They were happy to have safely arrived. When that single was released later that following summer and became a big hit, John Denver sent us a copy of the album that he autographed, which he said, thanks for the inspiration. It really does give folks an idea about what West Virginia is like. If you listen to the words of the song, that, that feeling that you get. Dark and dusty, painted on 
But some say the song does a disservice because it mentions the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Shenandoah River, two geographical features that are mostly associated with Western Maryland and Virginia. While the river and mountains do touch a small portion of West Virginia's eastern panhandle, Danoff says he wrote most of the song during a drive through rural Maryland. I was just driving out in western Maryland, and it was kind of countryside that reminded me of my home upbringing in western New England. But Danoff says he does have a connection to West Virginia. Growing up, he spent many evenings listening to the Wheeling Jamboree from WWVA. Jamboree performers entertain folks not only in all parts of this country, but in Canada and even in the Arctic Circle. In the, in the bridge of that song, there's a, there's a line, uh, I hear her voice in the morning hour, she calls me. The radio reminds me of my home far away. Driving down the road, I get a feeling that I should have been home yesterday, yesterday. I'm thinking of that radio. I'm thinking of WWVA and heading toward that, that radio signal. So there, so there really was a, an, early, an early a subconscious connection. And as for the geographical issue, when somebody pointed that out, Danoff came up with this answer on the fly. So I thought about it and I said, well, the guy's going home to West Virginia. He's going through Virginia and he's passing the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Shenandoah River. Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Sarah Morris is an English professor at West Virginia University. She's writing a book about country roads. She scoured the internet and read dozens of threads. People all over the world debate what this song is really about. So you can find people saying, well, it's, it's really about Virginia. It's really about Maryland. It was written in Maryland. It's really about Massachusetts because that's where Bill Danoff grew up. So I, I think lots of states want to own it. And lots of places across the world want to own it, which is why we see bands and musicians taking it up and changing the lyrics to match their homes. The song Country Roads has been recorded in at least 19 different languages and in countless different yeah, arrangements. Listen. Nobody owns the anthem more than West Virginians. The state bought the rights to the song so they could use it to promote tourism. West Virginia University plays it whenever they win a football or basketball game. West Virginia. When West Virginia Public Broadcasting put a call out on social media asking people to share stories about the song and what it means to them, we were flooded with emails, which then led to voice memos of people sharing their stories. We had Country Roads play as the last song at our wedding, and actually everyone that we know, all of our friends, every wedding we've been to in West Virginia, they've all also had Country Roads play at the last song at their wedding too. We begged our daddy to get it on 8-track so we could listen in the car and sing along together. It inspired me to save all the money that I earned playing the guitar or singing so that I could uh, afford the same guitar that John Denver played, which was a Guild F512. I still have it today. So it's kind of this cute little tradition that I've noticed amongst our friends or amongst people here in the state. Um, everyone just gets arm in arm and makes a big circle around the bride and groom in the middle, singing Country Roads at the top of our lungs. It's a great way to end the night. Morris says this song is emblematic of a nostalgia for the past and a desire for something just out of reach. These themes resonate strongly with many folks from West Virginia. There was this huge outmigration of West Virginians to work in industries outside of West Virginia in the 60s. West Virginia per capita lost more people in the Vietnam War than any other state. 
all of that was happening right around the time the song was released. So there was this overall mood of homesickness, not just for West Virginians, but also for our country. So the song was born into that. Homesickness is universal. Maybe that's why it resonates with people all over the world. Morris compares it to a concept in Welch culture known as hirif. It's this deep, internal, fundamental longing for a place we can never go. And I think there's an element of that in Country Roads, too. She says Country Roads is maybe about a longing for a place that never really existed in the first place. A place which our memories changed over the years. And during the pandemic, that nostalgia has grown even stronger for people, like Sonia Schaefer. She left West Virginia right after high school. She's traveled the world for work. Lately, though, that work has all been remote, so she felt the urge to come back. I could feel the magnetic pull taking me, taking me back, asking me why I left, asking me why I'm not home. Schaefer hired movers to bring her stuff across the country from L.A. and bought a one-way ticket to Lewisburg, West Virginia, where she grew up. She recorded this between flights that were taking her home. Well, today's the day. I'm on layover here in, in O'Hare with my cat. Uh, we made it on our first leg from Los Angeles. We're getting ready to board the flight to Lewisburg, West Virginia, here in about seven minutes. Um, really, it, it is. It's country roads. It take, take me home. I'm going home. It's been a long time coming. I slept in an empty apartment. Last night, actually played the song a few times. Two weeks after the move, Schaefer says returning to West Virginia has been basically everything she'd hoped. She takes a walk to a nearby creek every day, and she's enjoying being called Honey and Darlin'. And when she called the DMV to get her new license plate, she says her heart was flooded with emotion when she heard the hold music. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Roxy Todd. So there you go. The definitive history of Take Me Home Country Roads. Caitlin, as a lifelong resident of Western, not West Virginia, I feel obliged to point out that John Denver picked up inspiration driving up US 460 out of Roanoke, which is just down the mountain from me. So I'm going to argue that Country Roads is really about Virginia's New River Valley. And that line, almost heaven, West Virginia, is with a small w. By the way, Concord University, formerly Concord College, which Roxy mentioned in the story, is an underwriting supporter of Inside Appalachia. Roxy also mentioned a Welsh term for homesickness, hirith. It's a special type of longing for a place, a nostalgia. And the people of Wales have entire folktales that stem from that longing. Caitlin's too humble to mention it, but she's a finalist for an award from the Associated Press for a story she produced. It's all about two Welsh storytellers and their fascination with Appalachia. They called it the world turned upside down. In the 18th and 19th century, the British monarchy took over Wales and the Industrial Revolution began. Thousands of poor farmers were displaced, left with no land or work. So they sailed west, eventually finding themselves in Appalachia. And this continued to happen for hundreds of years. People were displaced from here and then coming over to Appalachia and displacing people who lived there. That's Peter Stevenson, a professional storyteller, artist, and folklorist who lives in Wales. So it's not necessarily a particularly nice story, but there's a lot of folktales behind that. Each night I suffer for your sake, believe me, dear heart's true, I wish that you were staying here, or I was going. Peter has spent the last few years writing about this complex period in history, about the connection between Wales and Appalachia. The tales have culminated into a book called The Moon-Eyed People. In a way, these old stories help us understand ourselves in the times we're living in, Peter says. Even the title, The World Turned Upside Down, seems pretty familiar right now. 
I don't think it's too much of a stretch of the imagination to kind of realise we're probably in one of those right now in a very different way. But it's in a human emotional level, we're upside down. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. If Peter's voice sounds familiar, we interviewed him for a story last year. He hosted an art exhibit in Morgantown featuring Welsh and West Virginian artists. Peter has family in the Mountain State, which initially sparked his interest in the connections between these two places. He says that through the centuries of immigration, the Welsh and Appalachian folklore have influenced one another. Geographically, they're very similar landscapes, you know, mountains, woods. Um, you have the big rivers, we have the sea. But there's this strong connection between the people and the land. And the thing that comes out of that connection is stories and music, folk culture, buildings, you know, all the things that are rooted in the landscape that people respond to and see. And as Peter has begun to retell these old folk tales for audiences, he's adapted them, sometimes just taking the idea of an old story and writing it using his own folklore research. In live performances, artwork typically accompanies each story. He often tells Welsh tales using an Appalachian storytelling device called the Cranky. Basically, it's a scroll that moves horizontally, depicting hand-drawn or painted images. And lately, Peter's storytelling performances about whales in Appalachia have included music. That's Elsa Hughes. She's a Welsh musician, storyteller, and artist. She wrote this song, Messenger of Darkness, adapting it from old Appalachian and Welsh folk tales about death, featuring an owl, an ominous symbol in many cultures. Although Elsa hasn't traveled to Appalachia, she says she's inspired by landscapes and the old folk tales of both countries. She started playing the cello at seven, and it was only later as an adult that she combined it with lyrics inspired by old Welsh texts. This sense of finding belonging, that I feel really present with that at the moment, this, um, this need to connect with my ancestors and to connect with the place where I am, the place where I feel at home in a deeper and deeper way. And I think through the arts, we can do this. Ilsa has also taken to the dulcimer, an ancient stringed instrument from Western Europe that was later modified into the mountain dulcimer in Appalachia. It's featured prominently in a lot of the region's old-time music. So Ilsa recorded herself playing the dulcimer in her own unique Welsh style across the Atlantic Ocean nearly 4,000 miles away. I can't profess to be able to play this, but I thought, well, I couldn't not play it a little bit for you. Elsa and Peter had plans to perform their stories and songs this summer in Wales, but the pandemic cancelled their shows. So they shared their collaboration via Facebook Messenger video with us at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. The story and song they performed is about the world turned upside down period in Wales. The story is called Where the Welsh Come From, told by Peter Stevenson and the Welsh hymn sung by Elsa Hughes. years ago, Minidbach, the little mountain here in Ceredigion, not far from where I'm sitting now, on the west coast of Wales, was a poor land. It was commonly owned land. The people scraped a living by digging peat, they quarried stone, and they kept goats and chickens. One of these was a young man called Jackie Ivan, who lived with his mother and father in a thinly thatched stone cottage. They scraped a living as their forefathers had done and Jackie's children would do after him. It had always been so and always would be. But this was 1819 
when commonly owned land was being fenced off and sold to raise money to rebuild the king's warships lost in the wars with Bonaparte. So perhaps it should have been no surprise when an elegantly dressed man appeared on the minute dressed in Carsima trousers and a silken coat, who announced that he had bought the common land, the mountain, and was intent on building a castle, as many a visitor to Wales has done before him. His name, and he had a fine name, was Augustus Brackenbury, a gentleman from Lincolnshire who had earned his money in the salt trade. The locals stared at him. They're very good at staring round here, particularly the children and the sheep. Nothing stares better than a Minidbach sheep. Augustus thought they were rude, but in truth he was speaking in a language they didn't understand because they only spoke Welsh. Augustus Brackenbury built a house for himself to live in while he designed his castle when, with just the roof slates to add, he woke up one morning to find it had burned to the ground. And there, standing behind him, staring, was young Jackie Ivan. Augustus grabbed him by the ear and asked him if he was responsible for this, but Jackie just stared, because, of course, Augustus was speaking in a language he didn't understand. Augustus dragged Jackie to the magistrate, but the magistrate explained that the people of Minnesbach couldn't understand how anyone could buy land that didn't belong to them. And anyway, they believed the land owned them. And so he let go Jackie go scot-free and find Augustus a couple of shillings for his trouble. Augustus built a second house and that too burned to the ground. He built a third house. Now this time he decided to keep watch. But as twilight fell, he saw coming down the mountain a strange procession. Men, a line of men, big men, each of them carrying lighted flares and armed with pickaxes and shovels. But it wasn't that that was so terrifying. What was so frightening was that each and every one of these big men was dressed in a skirt, an apron, shawls round their shoulders, blouses, bonnets on their head, and some of them even wore Welsh ladies' hats. Augustus Brackenbury raised his gun, and he pointed it at the ringleader, David Ivanagov, David the blacksmith, Jackie's father. There was one of those pauses, one of those moments where you could hear your heartbeat. Nobody knew what would happen next. But Augustus lowered his gun. Because how ridiculous would it be shooting a man in a frock? So they burned his house to the ground. But Augustus refused to move, so they had to drag him out, and his coat buttons were as hot as roasted chestnuts. Augustus was furious. This was war, revel. Augustus brought in watchmen and imported stone and timber from Scandinavia. It took him several years, but by 1826, he finally built his castle. It had a moat, towers and crenellations and turrets. The locals had never seen anything like this before, but they were impressed. They were craftspeople, of course. They recognised fine workmanship. But then one night, Augustus was called away on business. Young Jackie Ivan blew his pipcorn, a pipe, the parson rode round on his horse, and word soon went round the minute, and they answered the call. They came. Some say six hundred of them. Some said a thousand. They came from Llangurivon, Llanillard and Lledrod, 
big, strong men, all of them dressed in skirts, aprons, shawls round their shoulders, blouses and bonnets, one or two in Welsh ladies' hats, and in one single night, the big boys of Treventa knocked Augustus's precious castle to the ground. When Augustus came back, he really didn't know whether to cry or scream. But in fact, he ordered the arrest of every man, woman, child and sheep on the mountain. And Jackie's father, David, was taken to the Assizes in Cardigan and put on trial. But the case was dismissed because Augustus insisted that the proceedings were held in English so that no one on the jury could understand a word. So David was let off scot-free. The battle over land rights and enclosures lasted for 10 years and is known here as Revel Assaisbach, the war of the little Englishman. No one died in the war. Carts were thrown into lakes, people were bruised and frightened and many more houses were burned down to the ground. And now, if you go to Minidbach, you'll see a little mound covered in grass, which is all that's left of Augustus Brackenbury's castle. So who won the war? Not Augustus, because by 1829 he left and never returned. Nor the people, because they had no land, no way of earning a living. So they packed their belongings and they caught ships to Liverpool, where they then caught big schooners to the New World. They crossed the Alleghenies to the old Welsh settlement fort at Pittsburgh and then sailed down the rivers, the Ohio or the Monongahela. So maybe the land itself won the war. Though if you go to Minnesbach now, there are stone walls and barbed wire fences everywhere. And there are now wind turbines planted amongst the ruins of the old peat cutters' cottages. So who won? Well, if anyone won, it was the land itself. For the land is still there. And in time, walls and fences and even wind turbines will fall to the ground. And that is the story of Ravel Assais Bach. That was Ailsa Hughes singing a Welsh hymn and Peter Stevenson telling the tale of the War of the Little Englishman. Kaylin, it still gives me goosebumps when I hear it. Great job for producing it. Well, thanks, Mason. But I really think all the praise should go to Peter and Elsa. They're really just incredible storytellers and musicians. If you guys want to see Peter's drawings for the story you just heard, make sure to check them out on our website, wvpublic.org. After the break, we'll hear more award-winning stories from our West Virginia public broadcasting team. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right back. We fanned the woe in my poor aching heart. Each night I suffer for your sake. Believe me, dear heart's true. I wish that you were staying here or I was going with you. I wish Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Last year, we produced an episode about how parents are coping during the pandemic and how childcare has risen to the spotlight as a major societal issue. That episode is a finalist for an award from the AP for Best Documentary. 
Let's listen back to part of the show. Here are two mothers whose families were able to come through with much-needed support. But it took some pretty big decisions and life changes to make it work. Uh, My name is Melissa Ellsworth, and I'm married and have one daughter. She's 14 months. My name is Isabel Height. I am from Pendleton County, West Virginia. I am a wife and a mother to a little boy named Torrin. He's nine months old. We've been uh, doing this whole parenthood thing over the course of the pandemic, which has been an adventure, to say the least. Navigating childcare during a pandemic in rural Appalachia is um, laughable (laughs) and heartbreaking and stress-inducing and scary. (sighs) This might sound bad, but sometimes I sit at the end of my driveway on my way home from work and just sit in my parked car to just get five minutes of just mindless sitting so I can just take a moment before I go into the house. (sighs) Yes. I work three days a week and my husband, he works four days a week. And when I'm at work, he is with our son and vice versa. So right before the stay-at-home orders across the country started being enforced, my husband tore his meniscus at work. And so there was a period there of two and a half, three months where my husband could not watch our son Torin and we had no one to do it. (laughs) And I was considered and am still considered an essential worker. And so I wasn't able to work remotely or help in any way. And we had to really take a look at ourselves and what we were comfortable with and who we were comfortable with allowing into our homes. I lived in Morgantown, West Virginia, up until July of this year. We had a nanny, but when COVID kicked up, there were some moments when we were afraid of exposure, we all decided, you know, to sort of wait it out. And then that timeline kept getting longer and longer and longer as the pandemic grew. It never really got better. My parents wanted to help because I was increasingly becoming stressed. We both had demanding jobs and we just, we were just really struggling with um, providing a, a good environment a learning environment uh, for the child and my parents also really wanted to spend time with their only grandchild. My parents lived two and a half hours away and his parents lived in North Carolina. So they would take turns coming up during the week and would come and help. My mom would come and do an overnight, do a couple days, my dad would come up for a day. It is hard to find a babysitter. And under these conditions, it's nearly impossible. And so when we finally found one, uh, she is a college student. And she was amazing, but it was very scary for us to know that she was babysitting other families and coming to see us and knowing if she has been in contact with anyone who had COVID symptoms and That was really hard. One day, my mom sent me like a a Zillow listing. Just after after about four months of her coming back and forth from Morgantown multiple times, you know, throughout the month, she sent me a Zillow listing for a place uh, in Harpers Ferry, and we just I don't know, it's just something clicked. We, you know, I shared it with my husband, and we were like, let's do it. Let's, uh, let's buy a house. And we had always talked about moving closer to our parents, whether it was in North Carolina or in Jefferson County. And so we just didn't know when. 
my husband and I, we have decided that we will be moving to my family's farm in Virginia because we need help. We need support. I work from home and remotely as an attorney, so I was able to make that shift. Uh, it's created some issues for my husband with his work, but you know, it's been accommodating. Most importantly, I'm able to work because of the move. I, I really couldn't do it without the help of my parents. We really have so many unanswered questions. I mean, the whole country and world does have all these unanswered questions about what the next months and years will look like under these new conditions with a pandemic. And the one thing that is most certain is that I need to be around family and we need that social support and trust. I'm outside on a beautiful fall day. I am working on a little project for Torin's birthday. It's at the end of the month. His birthday is the 23rd, but we're having a little get together with the grandparents and some of our really close friends on the 24th. And what I'm doing is I am drilling holes in little wooden letters of the alphabet and stringing them with colorful string. And the idea is that when we're all together for his birthday, we'll take a break and we will string these letters up in the trees in our yard. So kind of as fall comes to an end and leaves start falling off the trees um, over the winter, hopefully Torin will look up and see these twirling, spinning, waving letters in the, in the trees and, and think that they're as cool as I do. <laughs> That was Isabel Height and Melissa Ellsworth, two young mothers who moved closer to their families last year to get help with childcare. Melissa works as a lawyer and lives in Jefferson County, West Virginia. Isabel is now working toward her counseling license. She and her family are still living on her family's farm in Rappahannock County, Virginia. Grandparents have always played an important part in Appalachian families. Kentucky and West Virginia have some of the nation's highest number of children who are living full-time with their grandparents. That number has increased in the last decade by nearly 18%. That's partly because many of these kids have parents with substance use disorder. Our colleagues at Us and Them podcast produced an episode all about grand families. That story won a regional Murrow Award. One of the people who's featured is a woman who goes by Gigi. She's raising three of her grandkids, and they live in a small town just outside Charleston, West Virginia. Us and them host Trey Kay met up with Gigi as she was picking her grandkids up at the school bus. While we sat in her car, she told me how things have been. Gigi just turned 60, and I asked her what she thought her retirement was going to be like. Oh, I have no retirement left. Yeah, I mean, you know, I didn't have a whole lot. And then, you know, what I did have, I've had to cash in, you know, so many times for this, that, or the other. I even had to uh, voluntarily uh, repo a car because so much changed when, you know, with the death of my late husband and, you know, the difference in our income and everything, I just couldn't make the car payments. I mean, I struggled and struggled and I just didn't have enough money, and so I voluntarily turned it in. So now I've got a big suit against me on that. You know, and it took me a while to get any assistance from the state. And from what I do get, it's not nearly adequate compared to, you know, if I adopted them, I understand I could get way, way, way more. Right now, Gigi receives $374 a month in caregiver pay. That's total for all three kids. She was getting SNAP benefits or food stamps up until a month ago. But then she started drawing survivor benefits from her late husband's Social Security. Now Gigi's income is above the limit to receive food assistance. I asked Gigi, what's stopping her from adopting her grandkids? Turns out, it's her daughter. She refuses. She said, I will not sign over my parental rights. 
Does she resent you? I think she does. In some ways, she does. In some ways, she does. She says I brainwashed the oldest one against her. When you're 70, you're going to have teenagers and somebody college age. How's that look to you? No, I just keep on going. You know, I just um, do everything I can to try to take care of myself and to try to... That's why I had to quit my pharmacy technician job because of the crazy hours at the hospital and, you know, long hours, mandatory overtime, mandatory different shifts. I've just always loved my grandkids so much that I just, you know, I knew it would be a huge sacrifice. I knew it would probably be difficult, but I thought, you know, their happiness, their being together, because, you know, I also think that with her health and the way she's going, who knows how much longer she's going to be around. So I'm here. This is a pretty big house, and I just want to make sure that I understand. Are, are you tending to these three children alone? Do you have a partner? Do you have somebody else in your life? It's just me. I have started seeing a gentleman um, that um, is also in a similar situation. Well, what do you mean? Uh, he's raising a granddaughter. Uh, it's actually not his biological granddaughter. It was his late wife's. She passed son's little girl. And uh, they had adopted her at two months old due to both the parents were drug addicts. And she just turned seven. And, um, you know, there's we just kind of, uh, you know, when we talk, we text, uh, we take the kids to the park, uh, we take them out to eat. We actually went to the beach together this summer. First vacation I've been on in years. And um, it was just really nice, you know, and the, the kids did pretty good. They were you know, a bit of an adjustment, but we survived it. <laughs> I asked Bonnie Dunn to introduce me to grandparents who'd benefited from the Healthy Grand Family's training, and she hooked me up with Gigi. I completely understand why Bonnie connected me with Gigi, because it's so obvious how this situation has changed her life. She seems constantly busy, like there's never a quiet moment. Even as we sit in her car waiting at the bus stop, the kids are eating snacks in the back seat, chattering and running around outside. Gigi watches them as she talks to me about the sacrifice she makes to ensure their future together. I don't want them split up. I don't want to lose them. You know, because, you know, early on, when all this first started, I said, well, you know, what if you would take them? What if they would go into foster care? Would I still have grandparents' rights? And they're like, well... Yeah, there are grandparents' rights, but the kids could go, they could be divided. They could go anywhere in the state, or sometimes they even go out of state. Gigi says her youngest grandkids don't really know what's going on with their mom. The oldest one, he knows. And I found out that, you know, mommy would go in a room and lock the door, and, and he'd have to bang and bang and bang, finally get her attention, and... To get him, mommy, I'm hungry, and this, that, and the other, and finally she'd come out and feed him. And you know, I mean, she never harmed them. I mean, as far as like beating them or you know anything like that, but it was just more of a neglect. You know, not caring to their needs and being you know on the phone arguing, paying more attention to looking for a next fix, I guess, than the kids, and just doing the very bare bones minimum. That was a woman who goes by Gigi, who's been raising her grandchildren. She was interviewed by Trey Kay, host of the podcast Us and Them. Trey also reported on a program at West Virginia State University called Healthy Grandfamilies. It offers 10 weeks of free classes for grandparents and great-grandparents who were raising children at a time when they were expecting to retire. Here's program founder Bonnie Dunn. As I was preparing for that very first session on parenting, I was extremely humbled to think that I'm going to go into a room full of people who have raised their children and who have found themselves in this situation. And I have parented and raised two children, and by all accounts, I guess successfully, at least my son tells me I got lucky. But going into that class the first time, I kept thinking, what do I say to these folks? And the thought came to me, must have not gotten it right the first time or I wouldn't be here doing it the second time. 
And I'm a woman of faith. I did a lot of praying about that. I thought, is this what I want to say to them? And so I stepped out and said to this in the context, I said, folks, I just, I just want to get the elephant out of the room because you are heavy burdened by what's going on. And I feel as if you think that you must have failed the first time around or you wouldn't be doing this. And the tears flowed. And I knew that I had hit the nail on the head. That was Bonnie Dunn, who helps teach a course for grandparents who are raising grandchildren. It's part of a program called Healthy Grandfamilies. To hear the full Us and Them episode, visit our website, wvpublic.org. For our final story, you've heard of drive-in theaters and drive-in restaurants. We even saw churches during the pandemic do drive-in services. But how about drive-in pro wrestling? Last summer, when most public events were shut down due to the pandemic, the All-Star Wrestling Company in Boone County, West Virginia, restarted its shows. And they did them outside. Reporter Emily Allen went and brought back this story. Normally, these wrestlers fight indoors at venues like the Madison Civic Center. But the All-Star Wrestling Company recently relocated to an open field behind Lee Dance Studio in Winfield, Putnam County. By 7 p.m., at least 50 cars surround a wrestling ring. They have someone in between matches come out to spray and wipe down the red padded corners. Loud rock blasts from a stereo system at the front of the ring. Families and fans watch from the hoods of their cars or on lawn chairs. Some wear masks, but most watch at a safe distance from both the stage and each other. Pro wrestling is about the energy that comes from that live crowd. This is owner and promoter Gary Dameron. We talked before the show while everyone was setting up. He has an all-star wrestling mask stretched across his mouth and nose. The reaction from the fans is what makes wrestling wrestling. WWE and AEW, some of the bigger companies, are not, of course, they can't allow fans to come in and sit around the ring. So they're doing empty arena type shows where they just go in and film the matches and it just doesn't have the same effect to it. All-Star Wrestling has been around for 14 years. Like other entertainment-based groups, they're navigating a global pandemic, which means they've already had to cancel three indoor shows. You know, I think this year has been a year of people stepping out on faith, you know, trying to get out and do things they normally have never done, you know, do new things. The show Saturday night featured mostly local wrestlers and wrestling personality Vicky Guerrero from AEW, All Elite Wrestling. <laughs> Fans like Ben Music and Al Scott from Portsmouth, Ohio arrived hours early. I've watched wrestling in 17, 17 states now, I think. And West Virginia's up there. It's probably like in the top five. Scott's been to other shows this summer, including a show from IWA East Coast at the Milton Fire Department last weekend. Because I think they drew about 180 people, is yeah. what the Facebook said. And usually that crowd, maybe like 100. 100 at the most. Yeah, really like people are stir crazy. They want to get out and watch yeah. wrestling. So. The wrestlers also were happy to be back. Like Casey Shingleton, a.k.a. wrestler Kirk Blackman. It's just nice to see everybody, because I haven't, I haven't seen any of these guys in four months. Blackman wasn't in the ring Saturday night, but was there to cheer on fellow wrestlers. So many people just have nothing to look forward to. Some people aren't back at work yet. Some people are laid off. They have nothing to do. Everything seems hopeless. So I guess the importance of this show is just to make sure that people are entertained and uh, make sure that everybody goes home with a smile on their face. Promoter Dameron said he hopes to have more drive-in shows with social distancing as the summer permits. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Emily Allen.
Since that story originally aired last summer, ASW Wrestling has restarted indoor shows. Emily's story is a finalist for an award from the Associated Press. This is, sadly, Emily's last week at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. She'll be moving on to work with Mountain State Spotlight. Emily, keep in touch, and hopefully we'll hear you again here on Inside Appalachia. Mason, I got to say, it was really great re-listening to all those stories again. And um, I can see why they've won awards. And what amazed me the most is just the diversity of our stories, right? Like there's indie pro wrestling, and then Peter and Elsa from Wales, and then a story about Take Me Home Country Roads, you know? So a little of everything. Um, What were your takeaways? Yeah, and in so many ways, it speaks to the core of what we do here at Inside Appalachia. Like childcare, family straining under the weight of this pandemic, it's been one of the most important stories in this region over the last year. One thing that strikes me the most about listening to these is just that it makes me look forward to sharing more stories about Appalachia, more stories about its people with our listeners. Absolutely. Well, I guess until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is older, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing like a breeze, country road. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Holtz is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups, and Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Sandra Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.